0: When we left off last week, a man named Eben melech had pleaded with King Zedekiah to allow him to rescue Jeremiah from certain death at the bottom of this empty well, muddy cistern that they, he'd been thrown into. Jeremiah is rescued as once again, he's confined to the courtyard of the guards, but at least he's got bread to eat again and he's relatively safe at least as safe as you can be in a city under siege. And the Lord promises that when Jerusalem falls, Eben Melech will be spared for his his care of Jeremiah and his courage at going before the king. Jerusalem has been under siege since January 15th, 588 BCE. It's now sometime in 587 BCE. Jerusalem and all the fortified city-states in Judah have been fighting for over a year now. Crops have neither been planted nor harvested, and food supply is dwindling rapidly. Egypt has once again proven to be a worthless ally, and King Zedekiah has sent for help from all the smaller surrounding nations, but they refuse to come to Judah's aid you will recognize all these nations as historical enemies of Judah, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, and Phoenicia up north with its great merchant cities of Tyre and Sidon. If King Zedekiah had lived during our age, he'd have been the kind of guy who constantly scrolls through his social medias, checking for messages. He calls Jeremiah in again. And ask anything new from the Lord, why do you keep pro- why do you keep prophesying the things you do? You keep saying this city will not escape the Babylonians, and that I myself will be captured and will see King Nebuchadnezzar with my own eyes. Why do you keep saying that if we fight, the Babylonians will not succeed because the Lord is with us? How can the Lord be telling us to surrender to the Babylonians? So you can imagine Jeremiah's exasperation with such a weak and pitiful leader. Jeremiah says. Do you remember when the Babylonians broke the siege for a hot minute to go deal with the Egyptians? Remember, I tried to leave Jerusalem to go to my home in Benjamin, but I was arrested. I was going because the Lord told me I needed to go by my cousin's field so that it will stay in the family. Reading between the lines, you can sense King Zedekiah is thinking that building a field right now is the craziest thing he's ever heard. Who goes out of a fortified city in the middle of a siege to purchase what is certainly a worthless field? If Jeremiah believes his own prophecy, he surely knows that field is already in the hands of the Babylonians for all intents and purposes. He knows there's no future for the tribe of Benjamin. Jeremiah continues. You wouldn't let me go, but my cousin came here to me while I was imprisoned in the courtyard of the guards, and I did purchase my ancestral land. The deed was signed and witnessed and sealed, and I gave both the signed and sealed deed and the unsealed copy to Baruch for safekeeping. I did all this in the presence of witnesses and of all those sitting in the courtyard of the guards. And I told Baruch, the Lord of Might, Lord of Armies, the God of Israel says to put these documents in a clay jar to preserve them, because a day will come when houses and fields and vineyards will once again be bought and sold in this land. Of course, in private, he's talking to God and saying, you alone are God, but really? The siege ramps are already built. The Babylonians are literally pounding on the gate, and you tell me to buy a field? You can tell from his private conversations with God that Jeremiah doesn't see any way this land can ever be returned to the tribes of Israel. The people are already scattered, or are in captivity in Babylon, or are in hiding in Egypt, or are actually starving to death inside Jerusalem. There's barely a ragtag remnant left. The Babylonian empire is crushing all the known world. And yet in Jeremiah 32 and 33, the Lord says, I am the Lord, the God of all. Is anything too hard for me? I will gather Israel and Judah back to this place where they will be forever safe. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will plant them in such awe and respect that they will never again turn away from me. I will take joy in doing them good and I will plant them in this land with all my heart and all my soul. I will bring health and healing. I will cleanse my people from All the terrible things they have done against me, and I will forgive them. And this city, Jerusalem, will be famous for all the good things I have done for it. The peace and prosperity I will bring will be so great that all the nations on earth will tremble with awe and will bring me honor and joy and praise. In those days, A righteous branch will sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right. And Jerusalem will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. As long as the day is followed by night, David will never cease to have a descendant on the throne of Israel nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to stand before me to offer sacrifices. Well, after the Lord says all that to him, that pretty much shuts Jeremiah up about that field. During the siege, the people of Jerusalem make an attempt to turn back to God. They remember that God decreed that all Hebrew slaves must be released in the year of Jubilee every 50th year was supposed to be a year of release from bondage. The Israelites had never really done this whole year of Jubilee thing, but desperate times call for desperate measures, right? So they make a solemn oath before God in the temple, accompanied by cutting a calf in two and walking between the pieces in the same manner God had cut that first covenant Way long ago, with Abraham, this is a as solemn a promise as when God promised to give them this land in the first place, back in Genesis 15. And with this solemn oath, they free all their slaves as a gesture of good faith towards God. And shortly afterwards, they turn around and force the people all back into slavery. God is furious if God is embodied in the poor and marginalized and enslaved then the people of Jerusalem are quite literally yanking God's chain it is now July 18th 586 BCE we know the exact date Jerusalem has been under siege for a year and a half. The story is in Jeremiah chapter 52 and in the last chapters of second Kings and second Chronicles. The food supply has completely run out in the city. You've heard the prophecies. You know what the people are eating now during the early midnight hours. The soldiers inside the city break a hole between two walls in the king's garden, and the whole army, at least what's left of it, sneaks out of Jerusalem, right along with King Zedekiah. If you've been following along, you know that last week Ezekiel prophesied that this very thing would happen. The soldiers and King Zedekiah flee towards the Jordan Valley, but they are spotted by the Babylonian soldiers. Zedekiah's soldiers scatter like cockroaches, and Zedekiah is taken captive by the Babylonians. Jerusalem falls. Scholars argue a little over the date, but 586 is the date I was taught in seminary. Um, It's the more commonly recognized date, and it fits with all the rest of the story. So that's what I'm going with. The reverberations are felt in Babylon as well. Just as he has been faithful to do all along, the Lord warns Ezekiel just before Jerusalem falls so that Ezekiel can continue to model for the people that this is the Lord's doing. But oh, what terrible agony Ezekiel endures in the moment there in Babylon as as Jerusalem falls. The Lord tells Ezekiel, I am about to take away the desire of your eyes, but when it happens, do not weep or mourn. Hold your grief firmly inside. Keep your turban on and keep shoes on your feet. And later that evening, Ezekiel's beloved wife dies. And Ezekiel goes out among the people and says, This is what the Lord says. I am about to desecrate my own sanctuary, the temple, the delight of your eyes. Your children remaining there will die by the sword, but you shall do as Ezekiel has done. You will not mourn or weep. You will keep your turbans on your heads and your shoes on your feet, and you will suffer in silence, for you have brought this on yourselves. From now on until this happens, Ezekiel will be silenced. He will not be able to speak until a fugitive arrives with the news that I have done all I have said. And so it was. Ezekiel does not prophesy again until news of the fall reaches him. Meanwhile, back in Judah, the Babylonian soldiers march King Zedekiah north to Riblah in Syria, where Nebuchadnezzar has set up his wartime court. There Zedekiah does indeed see King Nebuchadnezzar when his sentence is pronounced. And it is there that the sons of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, are killed before his eyes, along with all of his officials. Then Zedekiah's own eyes are put out and he is taken in shackles to Babylon, where he remains in prison, until the day of his death. Nebuzaradan, the commander of Nebuchadnezzar's imperial guard, returns to Jerusalem, and there he loots the temple and sets fire to it. He burns the royal palace and every important building. All the houses are burned and the walls of Jerusalem are torn down. Then all the people who are left The poorest of the poor and all those who had deserted to the Babylonians are marched off into captivity. Only a few of the poorest people are left to work the land. The officials and chief priest and any other of Zedekiah's advisors found in the city are taken to King Nebuchadnezzar's court in Riblah, where they are executed without mercy. The day Jerusalem falls is a terrible day in heaven and on earth. Just preparing these words left me nauseous. News reaches Ezekiel in Babylon five months later on January 5th, 585. And in that moment, the Lord begins to put words in Ezekiel's mouth again but what is happening to Jeremiah back in Jerusalem? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar has heard all about Jeremiah and how he predicted the fall of Jerusalem and how he urged the people to surrender to the Babylonians. So Nebuchadnezzar orders Nebuzaradan, the commander of his imperial guard, to find Jeremiah and do whatever he asks. Nebuzaradan sends word to Jerusalem and has Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. The soldiers turn Jeremiah over to a local official named Gedaliah. But then there's a big mix-up and Jeremiah ends up getting bound in chains and put in with all the other captives who are being carried into exile to Babylon. At the last minute, Nebuzaradan locates Jeremiah and releases him from his chains. He offers Jeremiah a choice. You may come with me to Babylon and I will protect you, or you may go wherever you like. It is entirely up to you. And as Jeremiah turns to go back to the wasteland that is Judah, Nebuchadnezzar tells him, go back to Governor Gedaliah, whom Nebuchadnezzar has appointed over the province. Live with him among the people, or if you prefer, go anywhere else you wish. Jeremiah does go back to live among the remnant of people under Gedaliah. Slowly over the following weeks, the soldiers of Judah who had escaped to the open country begin to return and they come to Gedaliah in Mizpah, just a few miles north of Jerusalem or what used to be Jerusalem. Gedaliah tells them, don't be concerned about serving the Babylonians, settle here in the land, plant and harvest crops, work your vineyards, press and store all olive oil. I will represent you before the Babylonians and all will be well. And so that is what they did. That is until Baalis, the king of the Ammonites, puts out a contract on Gedaliah. Then Johanan, one of the soldiers of Judah, comes to Gedaliah privately and says, Let me go after the assassin and kill him before he has a chance to kill you. We know exactly who it is. It's Ishmael, son of Nathaniah. But Gedaliah does not believe that Ishmael would do such a stupid thing. Ishmael had been one of King Zedekiah's officers and is of royal blood and is welcome at Gedaliah's table. So Gedaliah does not let Johanan kill Ishmael. And of course, the next time they all eat together, Ishmael and his 10 men kill Gedaliah, as well as all the men of Judah who were there and all the Babylonian soldiers present. Before the news of Gedaliah's assassination gets to them, 80 men from Shechem, Shiloh, and Samaria shave off their beards and cut themselves and tear their clothes in mourning and head for the temple or at least the temple ruins to bring grain and incense to offer in grief over the fall of Jerusalem. They have no idea what a hornet's nest they're walking into. Ishmael and his men come out from Mizpah to meet them on the road, pretending to be weeping and mourning as well. He invites them in to meet with the governor Gedaliah. But as they enter Mizpah, Ishmael and his men turn on them and slaughter them. Ten men are spared when they promise to give Ishmael some wheat, barley, olive oil, and honey that they've hidden in a field. Then Ishmael takes captive all the rest of the people in Mizpah. King Zedekiah's daughters and all the others Nebuchadnezzar had left behind with Gedaliah. Ishmael sets out with his captives and heads towards Ammon to present them to King Baalis. But Johanan, the officer who had tried to warn Gedaliah of the plot, hears of all that Ishmael has done. He and his men set out to intercept Ishmael and his captives. They catch up with them almost immediately at the famous pool of Gibeon, near Mizpah. Johanan and his men win the ensuing fight and rescue the captives. But Ishmael and eight of his men escape and flee to Amman. Johanan and the people with him are afraid the Babylonians will come back and slaughter everyone when they hear that Gedaliah, the man they'd appointed as governor, has been assassinated. I do not know whether the Babylonian army is still in the vicinity. It's only been about three months since the fall of Jerusalem. You can see both the war camp at Reblah and Babylon, and Babylon itself on the map here. But either way, Johanan and the people are absolutely right. The Babylonians will respond with great force when they hear of Gedaliah's assassination. So Johanan and the people set out for Egypt. But before they go, they consult Jeremiah and ask him to pray to the Lord for guidance for him. And they say, ask the Lord your God. Interesting that they phrase it that way, right? Ask your God where we should go. We promise to do whatever the Lord your God tells you we should do. Well, 10 days later. Jeremiah finally hears from the Lord. He gathers Johanan and the people together and tells them, the Lord says that if you stay here, he will build up and protect you. He says you should not be afraid of the Babylonians coming back because the Lord will deliver you from their hands. The Lord will soften the heart of the king of Babylon so he will have compassion on you. But if you persist in fleeing to Egypt for safety, then everything you fear will overtake you there. You will die by the sword and by plague and by famine, because even now you refuse to trust the Lord. Of course, as soon as Jeremiah finishes speaking, a man named Azariah hops up and shouts, you liar, God didn't say that. It's your friend Baruch putting you up to this. Baruch is trying to get you to hand us over to the Babylonians. And so, despite Jeremiah's clear warning, Johanan, Azariah, and all the people go to Egypt, taking Jeremiah and Baruch with them. They make it all the way to Taphanes, which is incredibly and painfully ironic. You see, if you go back to class 14, where we covered the exodus from Egypt, you'll find that my best guess as to what the Red Reed Sea actually was, it it was probably the great marshy lake, Manzala, and Toppenese is located on Lake Manzala, very likely the exact location of God's miracle of the parting of the waters, the place where the pillar of cloud and of fire protected the terrified slaves. Here, where their story began, their story ends. We have come full circle. In Tophanes, the Lord speaks again to Jeremiah, saying, While the Jews are watching, bury some large stones right in the brick entryway in front of Pharaoh's palace. Then say to them, here, right here, King Nebuchadnezzar will set his throne. He will attack Egypt and burn down all the temples. He will take all their gods captive, picking them out as so many lice. Why have you, the remnant I the Lord have saved, why have you left Judah? You will perish here. But still, the people refuse to listen to Jeremiah. They keep right on burning incense to the goddess Ishtar, the goddess of war and sex. You may recognize her by her Greek name, Aphrodite, or her Roman name, Venus. The Jews in Taphanes call her the Queen of Heaven and make cakes for her and pour out drink offerings to her. Jeremiah cries out, don't you remember why the Lord brought all this destruction down on our heads in the first place? How can you persist in these wicked, detestable things? You say you do them because you made vows to the queen of heaven? Well, go ahead then, keep your vows, but hear the word of the Lord. I, the Lord, swear by my own name that no one from Judah who lives now in Egypt will ever again invoke my name. I will punish you in this place. I am watching over you for harm and not for good. You will perish here by sword and famine, and then you will know whose vows will stand yours or mine. And this will be the sign so that you know that my word will surely stand. I will deliver Pharaoh Hophra into the hands of his enemies, just as I delivered Zedekiah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. While history tells conflicting stories about what ultimately happens to Pharaoh Hophra, his kingdom dissolves in civil war about 20 years after this. But all the stories end in his death at the hands of his enemies. Chapter 46 in Jeremiah, and four whole chapters in Ezekiel, chapters 29 through 32, are all devoted to woes on Egypt and on Pharaoh. We've touched on many of these passages already. These prophecies, especially the ones about Nebuchadnezzar decisively conquering Egypt, do not come to pass. I wonder if perhaps... Choices are made either by Nebuchadnezzar or by Pharaoh that caused the Lord to change his mind. We do not know. It's not in the biblical record. That would be in the story of these other nations. The Lord also does not forget all the other nations who laughed and clapped with glee when Jerusalem fell. He remembers those who did not come to her aid. Woes are proclaimed against Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, and Elam, which is over to the east of Babylon. These are in chapters 47 through 49 in Jeremiah, and in chapters 25 through 28, and chapter 35 in Ezekiel. This is also where the prophet Obadiah fits in. Just like Ezekiel 35, Obadiah's prophecy, Obadiah has his own book in the Bible, and this is his book. His book is an excoriation of Edom. After Babylon and Egypt, Edom catches the fiercest part of the Lord's wrath because the Edomites are descended from Esau, Israel's twin brother. They of all the nations should have been the staunchest allies of Israel and Judah, but they thwarted God's blessing at every turn starting even before the Hebrews had made it to the promised land. You can read Obadiah's one-page vision on your own. It is interesting that the Lord does not give Ezekiel any woes against Babylon, where he's living with the exiles. While Jeremiah devotes chapter 50 and 51 to woes against Babylon, Jeremiah specifically notes that it will be the Medes just to the north of the Babylonians, whom the Lord will stir up against them. As far as we know, Jeremiah dies in Egypt. Various legends were made up about his death, but these all originated many centuries later. We simply don't know what happened to Jeremiah. We'll say goodbye to him here. Ezekiel travels on with us for a little while more. We do, however, know from the biblical record that Zedekiah dies blinded and in prison in Babylon. And we also know what happened to Jehoiakim, who had been king before Zedekiah. If you remember, Jehoiakim had been king only three months when Nebuchadnezzar attacked back in 597 BCE and carried him off to Babylon. At the very end of Jeremiah's book, we find out that on March 22nd, 561 BCE, roughly 25 years after the fall of Jerusalem, a new king comes to the throne in Babylon. He frees Jehoiakim from prison, and Jehoiakim becomes part of the new king's court until he dies. That's quite an amazing story, sobering, alarming, one that leaves you shaking your head. Today, we witnessed the end of Judah and Jerusalem. The tragedy of it all wiped me out as I prepared this lesson. The messages through both Jeremiah and Ezekiel were so consistent, as have been the messages through all the prophets for the last several hundred years. How could the people let this happen? How could they let this great gift go by? And so today, I thought we'd just stay together and talk about whatever you want to talk about. This is the time to ask any questions you'd like or to share your impressions and reactions. We're nearly to the end of the Hebrew Bible. Um, If you looked at the study guide, you'll see there were no questions. (laughs) It was... Um, just letting you know what we have coming up. We, um, we've got some more, a little more Ezekiel to do. Not a, not a whole lot, but some more Ezekiel to do. And then, um, but we won't do it right away. After this, after this time, um, we will take a break next week because I have my eye surgery. And then the following week, we'll get back together and we'll talk about all the other promises that were also so consistent in all the in all the prophets. We'll talk about the other part of their promises, which was what would happen afterwards. And it's all the good things the Lord has planned. It's all the amazing things that are going to happen and um, how the Lord already, even in this moment, had a plan to to fix it, to, 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 that after the people go through this purification process, through this, through this, um, um, fire of, of just kind of burning away all the chaff and there's a, the Lord sees a holy, a holy people left, you know, and the Lord's got plans (laughs) for, for them. So we'll spend a week, um, when we get back together talking about that. And then we'll do Job, which will be so much fun. I can't wait. And um, then we will uh, take up the, the whole scene. will shift from Babylon, from um, Judah and Jerusalem, where it's been bouncing back and forth. It'll shift to Babylon now. And there's a whole lot of story that happens in Babylon. Most of it centers around uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, a little Ezekiel and, and Daniel. And um, and that's Daniel's quite an a horse of a different color. Uh, so we'll we'll uh, and kind of stuck into Daniel in the middle bits. Um, we will hit Ezra and Nehemiah, um, and and uh, maybe at the end of Daniel we'll do Esther. There's a couple of little tiny prophets in the in that slot in there, um, and then we're done with. The Hebrew Bible. So we're just very, very close to the end. We'll even uh, not long from now, a few classes from now, we'll start seeing the beginnings of the Apocrypha, um, those books that are not in our Protestant Bibles, and we'll start to see how they slot in to the story and why they're there or why they're not there. So, did you have any questions on anything so far? Things that are bothering you, things you're still turning over in your head, aha moments you've had. This is this is your free for all chance.
1: I just have a question. Um, this is going to exhibit my ignorance about um, Jewish commemorations of of historical events. I'm not aware of a particular commemorative day of fasting um, around the events of the fall of Jerusalem. Are there? Is there one?
0: I don't know. That's a really great question. It seems like there would be, but I'm not aware of any either, you know, Hmm. I don't know. I know that there are around the Holocaust. I know that they still, you know, celebrate the holy festivals in a modified form. Um, but I don't know. Does it, Shirley?
2: Did you know? No, I was going to say. I mean, most of the ones I know about are commemorating something good. Um, yeah. I think they tend not to. I don't want to use the word "celebrate" because that's not the right word. Focus but, on. Um, Commemorate, I guess, um, the the bad events as much, um, like the What's Holocaust. Um, yeah, that I mean, that was horrible. That was horrific. But again, they commemorate the rescue, the the release, the the final victory, not the horror, horrific events that happened. And I think that the Jewish culture is more about. Concentrating on the celebration, of yeah. And I just
0: googled it, it and mm-hmm. they do have a day uh, called the seventeenth of Tammuz. Um, that is a fast
2: day. There you go. Mm-hmm. Well, also, you know, I mean, they have For with, with Hanukkah every year. Um, I forget what the phrase is, but it's written on the dreidel. You, uh, Gail, you know what it is. Neshkadol um,
0: Hayasham,
2: probably next okay. year in
0: Jerusalem.
1: <laughs> well, no. I thought that was Passover.
0: No, that's a different thing. Um, the next year in Jerusalem is Passover. Neshkadol Hayasham okay. is the dreidel um, at Hanukkah. But but um,
2: okay. Well, I was thinking of yeah. Passover so they see. do. A, I
0: mean, I think your point is well taken. That 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 the way to commemorate these to mark these. Terrible times is fasting and prayer.
3: Yeah.
0: That makes perfect sense.
1: Um. Interesting. I mean, because yeah. what what a I mean, total catastrophe, and um, it's it's one of those things that that we probably were it not for these books we would they would have been forgotten by history it makes me wonder how many other nations and peoples were wiped out like this that we don't even know about anymore
0: yeah and for me, yeah. it's so interesting, the glimpses of the stories of the other nations that we get. It's just like we get little glimmers around the edges, and it makes me just wonder about what the Lord
2: did with them, you know? When I was in, I went to a Bible college in Tennessee, and um, one of the classes that was required was History of Western civilization which my freshman year I took and failed um it was awful but the teacher was so boring that he fell asleep in class one day I kid you not Mm -hmm. he was reading from the reading from the textbook and his head just kept dropping until it was done and we were wondering if he was dead or asleep (laughs) quite wild. do that you guys just don't come back He got up and quietly left at the end of class the next class came in we warned them that he was sleeping so they all came in quietly and sat down and halfway through their class he lifted his head and continued <laughs> and we had a different class but anyway so we took it with a different teacher and this particular teacher's name is dr ailing he is an archaeologist cool And one of the things that I learned in him, I learned so much in his class, it was so good. And I passed it. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that he talked about, um, that we learned about in his class, was um, about the Hittites, which up until, now I was in college in the late 70s, early 80s. So this would have been the late 70s. Up until that, till shortly before that time, the Hittites were thought to have been a fairy tale. Nobody had ever seen any evidence of the Hittites. Well, Hittites were one of the nations that got wiped out. And um, there was never any mention of them in other historical texts, Um, nobody. And, And everybody believed that the Bible was a fallacy because it mentioned the Hittites and Hittites didn't even exist. And then one day, In an archaeological dig, they found a town and they started digging around in the town. And guess what they discovered? This Mm -hmm. town was the town of the Hittites. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden the Bible had more clout. (laughs) (laughs) And there are a lot of things that are mentioned in the Bible that the Bible may be the only source we have that tells us historically what happened in certain situations
0: and And, also
2: uh, and also it may be the the
0: you know the bible is one of the most preserved (laughs) ancient texts that we've got it's not the only one but it's one of the most collectively preserved by humanity um and as you know we've done lots of different translations that have twisted it here and there and um, and we're not reading the original language and some of and many of the some of the translations are not from original um texts but are from the Latin versions or the Greek versions or you know um and so it can take many forms, but also we know and so it it it, it was a really big deal when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and they right. corroborated much of what was in the Bible, um, and added some information that we did not have before. And and those kinds of things will continue to happen. But I hope that as we've gone through these classes, you've also been able to see that the the Bible is not necessarily intended as an archaeological historical fact. It is intended as a story. It is collections of stories. It's, it's stories with a point. <laughs> and, and the point is the point, not the stories, you know, or the particulars themselves.
2: That'll be fun when we get in the book of Job. There's a lot of science in Job. Oh, okay. Well, you may know more about Job than I do.
0: Um, <laughs> but but uh, um, there's definitely food for thought in job and there's definitely things that you know you may it may not have b- been presented to you and it won't be your grandma's job that's for sure so <laughs> good not <Can't> wait <laughs> so it's one uh, of
4: dear, I'm curious when we finish the Hebrew Bible, the Apocrypha. We're moving on to the New Testament. Is that correct? Yes, right? ma'am.
0: I know y'all are holding on with your fingernails, waiting for the New Testament. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh no! This has been this this whole experience of going back and reading the Hebrew Bible um, with number one, I a new a new version of the Bible that I've been working from for this study, which is the new Oxford annotated Bible. And mine includes the Apocrypha. Um, (laughs) um, And and then getting your perspective and, and seeing the maps and following everything. I, I mean, it's like I'm reading the Bible for the first time in many ways. Um, The things that I'm seeing now that I never saw before and understandings of events that were never taught to me before. It's it's just been really an enriching experience. Um, I was just talking on another Zoom meeting on Tuesday night. I've been taking a new members class for my new church. And this one young woman was talking about how much she has struggled with the Bible and the God of the of the Old Testament and you know all of those things. And I just brought up one little thing. You know, she said she was having a lot of trouble even reading the Bible right now. She was really struggling at that stage in her in her life. And I brought up this Bible study and I said, you know, one of the first things I remember learning in this Bible study was that for the people in the ancient Near East, things did not need to be factually accurate in order to be true. And, and she went, wow. <laughs> you know, <they're> just like, <laughs> <laughs> and the pastor who was on the class, you know, was teaching the class. She went, yeah. <laughs> uh,
5: that is a, that is a mind blowing realization.
3: It is. When, yeah.
5: when you really, it's when you really so- get that. The things yeah. things true without being factually accurate. Yeah, because modern Western churches don't,
1: don't teach, they twist themselves in knots trying to make a factually accurate interpretation of things that just cannot be reconciled.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Which, when you think about it, even if you witness a car accident, each one of us witnessed the same accident Our recanting of that situation would be completely different in subtle ways. And you'd have to go, well, which one of these is the correct one? You know?
1: Yeah, right down to the color of the car. Right.
3: Right.
0: Which is one of the things I appreciate the most about the Jewish cultural treatment of these ancient materials they did not try to make every piece match they'd slap in yeah. one version of the story and another version of the story and maybe another one you know and and mm-hmm, and, yeah. they and they have continued that even after after in the after the new testament period when jerusalem is destroyed a second time you know they built up this whole culture of asking questions challenging the text teasing out of it what does it have to say to us
3: yeah mm-hmm.
1: and being comfortable arguing about it
4: yeah. and
1: and 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 not slavishly trying to slap one interpretation on it that can never be violated or otherwise you're you're yeah you know the whole structure on the road will to down. Apostasy. yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the 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 house of cards. You know. Yeah, and that's really I, I, the
0: thing with people who have come from, been raised in that kind of very, this fact, <laughs> this is the explanation, this is the explanation, this is how this fact fits, this is what the Bible says. They are scared to death to ask a question, even when they yeah. know the answer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because if, if, if the sense. answer
2: is what they know it is, the whole thing's going to fall down. And then mm-hmm. I, love, yeah. I love how we've been able to get a new perspective, how we've been able to take off the glasses. Um, and this may not be for all of you because you weren't all raised in a Southern Baptist church like I was, but mm-hmm. able to take off those Southern Baptist glasses and not look at the Bible through what I've been taught but look at what I've been taught through the, <laughs> of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And that has been <laughs> that's so a great way to it. refreshing. It has been so refreshing. It has been so freeing to be able to just change that, that narrative to be able to say, yeah, this is what I was taught. But is that really what the Bible says, which is how I approached um, when I was (laughs) trying to prove whether or not homosexuality was a sin going into (laughs) that, knowing that it was um, looking at it through those eyes of how I had been raised. But the whole time, and, and I swear to God, I fought for two years, I fought God, I told God, you're wrong. I've been taught this my whole life. I know this is how it is. And God kept just putting little things out in front of me and saying, Oh, okay, look at this. Look at this. Look at this person. Look at this person who loves me. Who's gay. And, and I kept seeing those things and I kept studying God's word and God kept prompting me toward love <laughs> and it took me two years of fighting and wrestling with God for God to finally get my attention and go, oh, that's what you've been saying the whole time. And so going into this, this is the first Bible study I've had since doing it on my own. I've never been in a Bible study that was led by somebody um, because I had nobody to lead because all the leaders I knew were stuck in that mindset of looking at the Bible, through what we've been taught, looking at the Bible through tradition, looking at the Bible through that's the way it's always been done. And being able to take the Bible and look at the world and look at the teachings, rather than taking the teachings and looking at the Bible has just been so freeing. And I yeah. that I hope that it stands
0: all of you in good stead, because the fact that I'm the one leading you through this in this particular way um, will, will cause you to place undue weight on my opinion. And I want you to be free of that.
3: But I you want know, you to need realize to steer us
0: away from that. Good. I want you to realize that just in the doing of it, you have absorbed some of my worldview. And you do not need to feel like you're betraying me if you go some other direction, you know? Um, Well, I I have literally. I really want just, I'm Bill, I just, I am, I'm like that really mean personal trainer, except I'm nice, you know? And, and um, I, I am building you muscles i am stretching you in ways you've not stretched before and i'm giving you those backpack tools that i'm hoping you're learning to use and not be afraid to use and and go back to the reference materials there's a link in your study guide and there's a and and reread from time to time those backpack tools and and think about hmm or if you run into something that 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 puzzles you because i I change, and the path that I picked through the forest this time will not be the path I picked through the forest next time if I live long enough to do it next
2: time That's <laughs> what uh, I appreciate, Gail, because you know what yeah. else you 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 tell us this is what I think this may not be exactly right it's got to be close, but you know you tell us that if it's mm-hmm. your opinion, you tell us that. If I try said, to. I'm not sure. I I get it every time. I'm I'm not sure I articulate. If there's some, well, the of fact, way. you know, you. But just like with today, with the the dates, you say this is the common date that most people agree on. It may not be exactly right, but you know, it's close. Or some, so you know, close enough for what we're doing, right? Right.
3: <laughs> but yeah. you, the thing I learned, I can the disagree most. with
2: you and still be in your class because, like, yes, you, you there are do. some things that I still don't agree with you on. That's mm-hmm. that's good, but that's OK. I don't know which one of us is right. And I don't care because it doesn't matter in the larger scheme of things. Yeah, I heard Renee.
3: Yeah, <laughs> one thing that I've brought out of the study that has affected me the most. Um, I was, as you, I said, it mentioned it before, I think that I was not raised in a Christian home. I was raised in an addict home. Um, My grandmother was Catholic, I went to some stuff with her when I got older and wanted to find out some stuff. But my main spiritual leader was my Aunt Billy, who was uh, half Native American. And so she taught me to look at the things around you and stuff like that to find God, to find what what he feels. And so when I got married to Jeff, um, he was a Christian and we started at uh, a Methodist church and we were there for a while and I was learning stuff and I thought it was really great. And then we got a female pastor and Jeff, you know, and mm-hmm. so we we ended up at a Southern Baptist church. I'm sorry.
0: <sighs> <sighs> <laughs> There's and, there's good things about the Southern Baptists. There really well, are. I mean, yeah, there, there, the there, good, there are, are good God. people there, and there are good things yeah. about it. The Just problem
3: not that I had with it is, I felt like I had to conform to the way they thought of things because obviously what I was taught as a child and young person was wrong because. You know, it came from either a Catholic or a Native American. So I reinvented almost my entire self wow. to fit in with these this people until God started going, <clears throat> you know, tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Look at this. This this isn't, you know, and um it got to the point where there was a couple different things. Um yeah. and that's when God finally started like, you know, hmm, I think I got a different road for you. And so we ended up I ended up getting kicked out of the church. I was asked to leave um, about a few years later, we moved to Texas and ended up at uh, we had gone to a Lutheran church in Jeff's hometown whenever we visited, because that's what his um, sister was. And um, his mom was. Um, four square. Mm -hmm. but we always ended up at the the lutheran church so when we can move down here we started going to a lutheran church and it was 180 degrees from the lutheran church we went to in his hometown well we didn't realize very it was a missouri synod church here and we went to an elca church in colorado yeah Mm -hmm. they're different so it was like okay so this isn't work and about that time my youngest daughter came out as bi, and then about six months later, my oldest daughter said, "Well, you know, mom, I'm I'm a lesbian. That's why I've never really had any dates." And it was like, "Okay." And they were awful to them. Oh, awful. So the church uh, was awful there. to you, yeah. The the church, the pastor, yeah. the people. Uh, my best friend at that church told me that if I didn't want to damn my girls to hell, I needed to either have them leave the house. And learn on their own what God wanted or just, you know, because they were going to hell. There was nothing. I couldn't save them from going to hell. So I needed to save myself for my mm-hmm. kids. I'm like, you know what? You're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not going to happen. And the pastor even called me and to talked to me about how that I was not by affirming and accepting my kids. I was not helping them. And I'm like, no, mm, no. Nope, nope. uh, and I flat told him, I said, you know, the problem, the one thing that I remember most from my childhood is my dad telling me that Christians are hypocrites and they're going to turn on you. And I said, you know, this is the second time this has happened. And so I think I'm going to go find my own way. <laughs> <laughs> and so we actually, actually, this Bible study has shown me that I can find my own way, that I don't need some people, a pastor or people at a church, to tell me how I have to believe. And that's the number one thing I've gotten from this study.
0: That's a tender, tender moment.
3: Yes, and, and thank I want you.
0: To honor that and the courage that it took for you to try a third time. Mm. And to be vulnerable to this
3: group of people, and to mm-hmm. me, and I've told uh, you guys a lot more than I've ever told anyone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I okay. feel safe finally in a religious surrounding. Yeah, yeah. it huh? is a shame
0: that many people would say Christians. I know you're a Christian because you're a hypocrite, not I know you're a Christian because of your love. And I know that the things that we do that I that I do in this little Bible study, this is a small group. And sometimes, you know, and you're thinking, well, Lord, it's it's a small group. But this is where the Lord is. This is how it's supposed to be talking to each other where we know each other face-to-face, where we know about each other. This is how Christianity is supposed to be. We, the Western church has bought a lie.
4: You know, Gail, I think um, I saw a post on your Facebook page about the new NRSVUE Bible. Mm-hmm. The and NRSVUE. I- yeah i forwarded that link to my very fundamental son thinking i would get pushback and he actually was embracing of it um you know I, i think the part about sin sacrifices and things about that that he had read about so maybe that new um translation will help with some clarity for people Absolutely. It hopefully it can undo
0: some of the damage that was done. No. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any last comments? Anybody who didn't get to speak up?
5: I have a I have a quick question that this came from two weeks ago when we were talking about Ezekiel, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And I think I actually asked a question at that time, as I recall. The parts of Ezekiel that that we read, it was all about this vision that Ezekiel had, and and it started me wondering, you know, is there a distinction? Do do biblical scholars see any distinction uh, between like the the parts of the Hebrew Bible where the the prophet uh, says what his vision is versus what somebody says actually happened?
0: Yes. And, oh, what a great question! Yes.
5: Is there more to so the we'll question? Talk about that.
0: Okay. So again? I said, is yeah, there yeah, more I, to the question?
5: Well, just, you know, is that is that a distinction that biblical scholars recognize?
0: Yes. Well, I hope they do, but they we, we <laughs> well in this class. Uh, so we are going to study that in when we get to the middle part of Daniel, because Daniel is the one prophet who has these visions— And then immediately asks for the interpretation of it while he's in the vision. He asks for the interpretation of it. What a smart guy. (laughs) And so so then he writes down the interpretation and we have like three for sure. And, and one and four, there's another one. That's a gigantic one, but there's three for sure. Then in one of the classes, we're just going to line them right up and look at Here's the vision part and here's the interpretation. And what the difference is is the vision is of what's happening spiritually at least in in these prophecies. The interpretation is what that means and what you see here on earth. What will actually happen. And it's re- and we get them all balled up together unless we're meticulous about laying it out so that we see, oh, this is the dream part and this is the interpretation part. And then suddenly things begin to come much clearer. So it's a backpack tool we're going to pick up. (laughs) Cool.
5: It seems like it seems like sometimes, and I have to go back and, and, and reread a lot, but it seems like sometimes the way the the Hebrew Bible reads is this happened and then this happened and then this happened. On the other hand, sometimes you have like in Ezekiel, I had a vision where this happened and this happened and this happened. You know, so one is saying that it actually happened. Another is saying I had a vision. Yeah.
0: And you have to be very careful to distinguish between whether what is being told you is the spiritual view of what's happening it's, it's, it's like they happen in parallel. It's like I talked about last week that it's an iceberg where the physical part is just the part that we see, but the total reality includes what's happening spiritually as well. And very often the prophets are talking in that spiritual language. And that's where some of this really crazy imagery comes in, but then, you know, they'll hop back and forth between this is what's Actually, going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come beat the gate down, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, versus some of the spiritual things, and we it is harder to see in the prophets we've been studying, and easier to see in Daniel because he actually in his narrative separates them. The other prophets, like Jeremiah and Isaiah, they just wobble between the two, and and you know, and, <laughs> and so we've learned to pick out. You know, little words and phrases.
1: Marlene. Um, the, the the skeptic uh, feminist in me just popped up as I was hearing you talk. Um, when, when you were saying that, you know, most of the revelation that we see was to men, the visions and the dreams and the word of the Lord. How much do we think of... God's revelation came to women, but either because they couldn't write or because they didn't have rule following them or because nobody would listen to them, um, never got recorded. And did the messages that they received, would they, you know, this is probably pure speculation, but would they have been more attended to by the women of their culture? And completely ignored by the men. And, you know, I've, I've been reading um, Original Blessing by Matthew Fox. Um, and he talks a lot about the early mystics of the church. And he includes not only the men, but the women. Um, and and you see these women who are having visions and are having revelations and are writing them down because they're at a time when they can write them down. Um, I'm assuming that happened all through human history, but we don't, we don't have the records of that. I think
0: that that's a very safe bet. Um, But my other comment would be to, to put it in a different frame. And that is to say that the Lord is revealing the Lord's own self to each and every one of us all the time. And we are the ones making the choice whether to speak up. Love to you all. Let your surgery go well. Yes. Yes.
3: Here's
2: your surgery. Monday.
0: Monday. Monday. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care Bye. all. Bye.